0: So turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick up at verse 14. The plan is to make it down to the end of the chapter. But there's a lot of ground to cover, so we'll see how we do. The title is The Ministry Objectives of Jesus. So we just sing a lot of songs that talked about the kinds of things that Jesus does. The kind of expectations that we have that cause us to pray, that causes us to to, um, sing out in expectation of what the Lord is going to do. But where do we get those expectations from? Are these just things that we want? Are these just things that we desire? Are they just sound good? They've got a good beat, so therefore, no, it's not that. We go to the Word of God and we find out how He ministers and we find out how He served. And we know from that how Jesus wants to minister and how He wants to serve today. So Jesus began to do ministry while He was upon this earth. But the ministry didn't stop there. The ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is still going on today, and we need to see it as that. And not simply as gifted individuals that are able to take you know, a truth and apply it in a situation. And you know, if all things come together, then, then a change happens. No, we're still talking about a God who's working to save and to redeem and to heal and to restore. That is our God. And so we're going to see this as we begin our journey through. So let's look at verses 14 and 15 together. And we see from this that Jesus returns in power. So he's been out in the, the wilderness. He's been tempted. He comes back from that to his hometown and really starts his public ministry in earnest. And we read, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So he returns in power. Luke has made many references to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 15, uh, there's a reference uh, to the ministry um, that was going on there, in Zachariah's life, uh, chapter one, verse 67. Um, uh, with Mary, uh, chapter 1, verse 35, Simeon, chapter 2, verse 25. And and so we just see these repeated encounters, chapter 3, verse 22, uh, at the baptism. In um, chapter 4, verse 1, we see him going out into the tem- temptation, into the wilderness, and the Spirit is there. And now again, returning and beginning public ministry, we see that he is coming back in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, and yet he depended upon the ministry of the third person of the Godhead, of that power to be upon his life. If Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean for us? I mean, we are desperate for that ongoing work and power of the Spirit of God in our life. There's no way around it. Now when Jesus returns, we see this, that he returns strengthened, not weakened. Forty days of fasting and a a head-to-head encounter with not a demon, but with Satan himself. And Jesus walks out of that scene strengthened and empowered and ready to do ministry. I came across this quote and it just spoke to me. It says, Fidelity to the divine will will does not leave one depleted and exhausted, but spiritually empowered. If you do what God calls you to do, you're not going to be beaten down and worn out and thrown up on the the ash heap of another servant if you do that. Well, what about burnout? Burnout. What about burnout? Burnout. Because Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy, and my burden, it is light. How does an easy yoke and a light burden cause burnout? The answer is, it doesn't. It doesn't cause burnout. As a matter of fact, even, and I forget which of the prophets it is, it's either Jeremiah or Isaiah, but the Lord says, Don't say it's hard to do the will of the Lord. Don't say, Oh, what a burden. Th- this is not what it's like to be in ministry. So, having been in ministry for some time now, I can tell you when burnout happens, it's when you're not doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's when you're not having an encounter with Jesus, when you're not abiding in Him, not being strengthened in the Word, not being you know, revitalized in prayer, not being encouraged in fellowship. Of the brethren, and then you're trying to do it on your own. Yeah, you'll you'll get worn out. But again, this quote Fidelity to the divine will does not leave one depleted and exhausted, but spiritually empowered. It's the exact opposite. And we see this modeled in Jesus 40 days of fasting and head on encounter with Satan. And yet we read Jesus returned in power. I don't have time, I don't have the strength, I don't have the energy. Oh, you don't know about the Holy Spirit, do you? I just don't know if I have anything left in me. That's okay. We don't want you. You don't want me. We want the Spirit of God working through emptied vessels that have been empowered with the Holy Spirit and filled up with the Word of God and a love for people. And in that, we should do this. But, you know, when we get to heaven we will be able to sit down and we will be able to rest. But until then, we have this model that says we should go. Now, listen, the temptation of Satan was meant to destroy Jesus. It was meant to be the final um, or the first and final uh, knock at him to keep him from ever really getting going. I don't know what trials you're facing. I don't know what hardships you're going through. But I just want to tell you this. The Lord is wanting to build strength and faith and endurance through whatever you're going through right now. He's wanting you to build strength and faith and endurance. That's what he's wanting to do. That's what he will do, just as he did with his son. He will do with you, and it will bring benefit to the kingdom of God. So Jesus returns in power, not beat up, not washed up, not I need a break, but ready to go. Verses six through sixteen through nineteen we see the style of Jesus' ministry, the Jesus' style of ministry. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, Nazareth was a hometown for Jesus. This is where he grew up. So, of course, down in Bethlehem, born there, then they fled down to Egypt. But when they came back from Egypt... He grew up in the town of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was not a metropolis. And only, they only expect that there was somewhere between 200 to 400 people. You know everybody in town there, don't you? Especially when you're so communal, right? I mean, if you wanted to live, you were part of that community. So they all knew each other. When Jesus came back into town, um, they knew who he was. There's no question that they would hand him that scroll of Isaiah. I'm sure they had been impressed um, with him as the leaders of Israel had been when he was 12 years old in Jerusalem. Remember that? Well, he was there with them every day. He was with them every Sabbath. So when he came in, it wouldn't be a surprise that they would ask him to to read or to, to share because he was well known for his understanding of the word of God impressed those that were at the head of the country at that time. So the account that we have here, um, verses 16 through 30, of the synagogue, it's one of the earliest recorded um, accounts of what took place in a synagogue. Synagogues, if you try and find a synagogue in the Old Testament and you find it, you didn't find it because they don't exist back there. Okay, So if you found it, you found something else. You didn't find a synagogue. And there's really no definitive statement of when synagogues, the gathering place for the Jews, when that began. The best guess is that they happened in the exile under the leadership of Ezra, who was a scribe. But we can't be definitive with a biblical certainty. But somewhere in the exile is when it's thought they... Began to do that, which would make sense. They're not there in um, able to go to the temple and to worship, so they had a place where they could instruct and they could teach. They would read, they would pray, as a place to receive help if you needed help. So they're coming together now. When we read about Jesus coming into the synagogue and that he stood up to read, uh, a synagogue was basically a rectangle, and there, if you can imagine stone bleachers, maybe three levels. of of stone seating going up and went all the way around. The women were on one side, the men were on the other. At the front, there was even, uh, like where I would be, there would even be uh, the kind of seating that would go up behind. But there would be a place where they would come and they would open and they would roll out the scroll and it was there that they would read. And then typically they would then sit down, the teacher would sit down and he would begin to give instruction. So Jesus is here in this scene In this small little town, in a synagogue that he had gone to many times, very familiar, would have known all the faces, and he begins to read from this place. And he um, says, the first thing we see Isaiah talking about, what the Messiah, uh, because this is a messianic prophecy, um, and Jesus is going to go on to say, hey, this is me, Um, it's fulfilled. The first thing that we see about Jesus-style ministry, we've already touched on it, Once is that he was enabled by the the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It would be a good thing for us to determine that we will never put our hand to ministry of any sort again without the power of the Holy Spirit upon us. How do you do that? How do you make certain that the power of the Holy Spirit is upon you? Well, I'll tell you some things that you can... Um, do that the Bible tells us. One is you can ask the Lord to fill you and to touch you with His Spirit before you lead worship again, before you teach those squirrely, squirmy little second graders again, especially you. Ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit before you meet for a, a cup of coffee with a brother or sister that maybe has been you know, just struggling a bit or they've got a heavy heart. Pray, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit before I begin to get into this conversation. Ask the Lord. We have not because we ask not. Ask the Holy Spirit to, or for the Lord to put his Holy Spirit upon you. And this is not some uh, crazy prayer request because this is exactly what the prophet Joel said. That in the last days, God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh, old men, young men, old ladies, young ladies. Everyone would have the spirit of the Lord upon them. And this is how we should be involved. So let's determine, let's conclude we're never gonna step foot into a ministry place, never gonna place our hands upon the plow of ministry. Again, without saying, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me to do the work that you've called me to do. Nobody wants, again, to see what I can do. Nobody wants to see what you can do. What we want in ministry is faithful brothers and sisters that are yielded to the Spirit of God on their life. That is what is needed. So the first thing we see about Jesus' style of ministry is that he is enabled by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, what we also see is that he preached to the common man. He preached to the poor. That that who represented the majority of the land of Israel was a very common person. And uh, at times, one author says this was a reference to only those that um, were without means, but it also became associated with those who were spiritually needy, those that were disillusioned, those that were oppressed and were expecting God to work. They were in need of a special move of the Holy Spirit. This became synonymous with who the poor were. And I wonder, is that a description of you? Because if so, Jesus has come to preach to you. Jesus has come to minister to you. So yes, it it certainly referred to the economically challenged of that day. That found themselves in a difficult place. But it doesn't exclude those that maybe had plenty. For example, Matthew. For example, Zacchaeus. Um, Nicodemus. Um, a lot of these had, had wealth. They had resources. Jairus, right? The keeper of the synagogue there in Capernaum. He would have been, um, wouldn't have been in this class. So there was plenty that weren't there that Jesus ministered to um, and and served. Um, Mary, who anointed Jesus with uh, this costly bottle of spikenard that was worth a year's worth of wages. Clearly, she wasn't living day to day or starving. Otherwise, that wouldn't have been held any longer. So don't think... That Jesus doesn't like rich people and he only came to preach to the poor. But here's the, the reality. All of us are poor, right? The church of Laodicea. You know, you think you can see so good. You think you got great clothing. You think you're, you're in need of nothing. I say that you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. <laughs> you think you're rich, but you're poor. So in reality, every person is poor. Just not everybody knows that. One of the greatest things that ever happens in any human being's life is when they are poor in what? Spirit. When I realize spiritually I am bankrupt, I am destitute, I need an intervention in my life from God or I am in serious trouble. And so Jesus came, as we read this, he came to preach because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, the gospel, the good news, the good news. Things are going to change. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the message that Jesus came with, calling people To believe, calling people to repent and to receive the good news. He's coming to bring salvation. As we keep on reading in this section, we see uh, the third element of Jesus' ministry was that He came to heal the brokenhearted. He has sent me to heal those whose hearts and their uh, expectations have been destroyed, and they're crushed and they're pressed down. Jesus says, I've come to minister to them. Brokenhearted are people that the Lord has a lot of attention on. Psalm 34 verse 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Psalm 51 verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Or Psalm one forty seven verse three, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Do you need know to have some wounds in your life? Who's the healer of wounds? Who's the one that takes care of that pain in your life? It's Jesus. Jesus says, This is what I do. I come in the power of God. I preach to the, those that are that are without, and I come to those who have wounds in their life. They are brokenhearted. And the Lord wants to touch you. The Lord wants to minister to you. He wants to minister to your friend. You know, maybe you know somebody that's brokenhearted and you're like, I just don't even know what to say. Take them to Jesus. You're not the Messiah, but we know where he lives. And take them there. You have access into the throne room of God to receive mercy and help in time of need. Take them to that place. Expect that God's going to work and move in their life and heal that broken heart. You know, this is quite a description Jesus is giving to us of what he wants to do. I mean, if you're beginning a a, a new business, is this the kind of people you want to gather alongside of you? I want the poor, and I want those that are just broken inside. That's going to be my team, but that's who Jesus came for. This is what Jesus wants to do. Let me read to you from Charles Spurgeon as he writes about Jesus coming for the brokenhearted. He writes, Few will associate with the despondent. But Jehovah chooses their company and abides with them till he has healed them by his comforts. He deigns to handle and heal the broken hearts. He himself lays on the ointment of grace and the soft bandages of love and thus binds up the bleeding wounds of those convinced of sin. This is a compassion like a God. Well, may those praise him to whom he has acted O gracious apart, the Lord is always healing and binding. This is no new work to him. He has done it of old, and it is not a thing of the past, which he is now weary, for he is still healing and still binding as that original hath it. Come, broken hearts, come to the physician who never fails to heal. Uncover your wounds to him who so tenderly binds them up. Makes you want to come to Jesus, doesn't it? Run to Him. But just being candid, you know, there are are times when we have wounds in our life that we would almost rather keep in their open, festering state than to move on. And this this can become tragic because you can begin to only identify yourself and your whole thought life, and everything revolves around your wound. It's not that God can't heal you of the wound. It's, this has become your identity is your wound. And you're unwilling to receive it. You're unwilling to forgive the one who's wounded you. You want to keep the wound active? Don't forgive. Why should I forgive them? Well, because you've been commanded to. Because they need to see a, a show of grace that may draw them to repentance. Because if you don't, it's going to stay alive. And it's not going to go away. And and so the Lord will come to you. And he'll say, I want to touch it. I want to heal it. Let me give you an example. And I realize that this example is going to seem maybe trivial or small to uh, some of the things that you have faced in your life. Just look at the principle. So when Rebecca and myself were um, three days after we got married, We went on to the mission field, and um, we had a nice stop off in Hawaii. But we went on the way down there. We, you know, uh, stopped in Hawaii for our our honeymoon, and then we made it our way into Australia for uh, almost two years of ministry down there. And um, had a lot of great friends. We it was just it was a it was a wonderful time. But the church went through a split, and um, it was a painful time. I learned things about the church that I had no idea ever went on. <laughs> I was just naive to it. I was down there in ministry, but I just didn't know. You know, well, what do you think about the bylaws and the constitution? I'm like, all I could think, honestly, this will show you. All I could think was, U.S. Constitution. What? Why would they care about our constitution? We're talking about church. I just couldn't figure out what this big argument and fight was about. Eventually, put it all together. I didn't, you know, I didn't ask. I figured it out because I realized I would have looked like I didn't know what I was doing, which I didn't. But, you know, got to save face a little bit. So I figured it out, and there was this fighting that was going on, and everybody had to take a side. And 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 so, of course, it got ugly, and a lot of my, our, a lot of our good friends, um, were uh, sons of the, the guys that were on the. This board and we're taking different sides. And, and so um, one night after they the split happened and people left the church, and I was uh, naive to think that this wouldn't affect our relationship. Um, and so um, I would, you know, we we're doing things together. And I could tell that things were a little tense, but I just figured, well, enough time, we'll all we'll, get over this. But uh, one night we um, called up, find out what everybody was doing. And they told us what they were going to do. We said, great, we'll meet you at the bowling alley. Then we got a call back Say, hey, we decided we're not going to go bowling. I said, oh, that's right. What are you guys going to do? And this guy finally um, had uh, enough kindness to say, Troy, they don't want to meet with you. They don't want to be around you. I'm like, what? Again, totally clueless. I'm like, what? Why? And they said, well, because of the split. I'm like, yeah, but I don't. Why would they care? They're like, listen. You know you you stood with the pastor and you know and not there you know everybody else they want, they don't want to see you ever again and I hung up that phone and um, and it was a lot harder for me than it was for Rebecca, although she felt it too, but I had known these guys before she had gone over there we had hung out like almost every night, and um, it was just devastating and um, so I felt that that wound. Um, The whole time we were there, and we got home, and we went to a Bible study back at Calvary Costa Mesa, and Pastor Odin Fong was teaching a Thursday night study, and we went to the study, and he was teaching through Corinthians, and he read this verse that says, where Paul dealing with a group of people that wounded him a lot, the Corinthians, and the text reads, I consider it a small thing that you judge me. And it just, like, time stopped. Do you ever have those moments? It's like one phrase of one verse, and the Lord arrested me. And he's like, you're making a big deal out of something that you don't need to make a big deal out of. But, I, I mean, I was the one that was wounded. I, you probably felt bad for me, right? I mean, you, you, you know, you, this was, I had reason to be hurt and offended. And, you know, what? the Lord just, in that moment, just said, let go of it. Just, just say, it's not a big deal. And I remember saying, yeah, well, I'll try it, but you're going to have to help me. And I can tell you that on that moment, that night, that wound was healed by the Lord. And, um, and I know that if it wouldn't have been healed, that it would have been something, because we had even talked about, I'm like, man, if this is ministry, uh, just forget it. I'll go figure something else out to do. I don't want to go through that. And so it was having its, an impact on, on me and my perspective and outlook in ministry. But, you know, you have to want that healing. You have to want to be healed. For some of you, and I don't know all your circumstances, but some of you need to say, I consider it a small thing. Now, maybe it's a tremendous thing. Maybe it's huge. Well, why don't you just consider it a thing that God can heal and help you move beyond 2 Corinthians seven six. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Has somebody ever come to you? Has a brother or sister ever come to you and said, love you, thinking about you, praying for you? Can, can you receive comfort from that? You can if you will. If you're willing to receive the comfort that God is sending, you can receive that comfort. And you can be healed by the Lord. Now listen, I'm talking about one aspect. I'm not trying to make a full statement on, you know, a theology of brokenheartedness. But I am saying this. Sometimes people don't want to be healed because it's who they are. It's the way you've lived. It's your identity. And if you let go, you're releasing that person. And there can be such a sense of injustice Of what has happened to you that you can't let that go. Because if you let it go, it means that it's not a big deal. That doesn't mean that. It means you're obedient to the Lord. So let it go and ask the Lord to heal you. And if you've not been healed by the Lord, then you need to ask the question why not? And I would say, hold God to his word, to his character, to his ministry style. And don't quit seeking him until you receive the healing. But sometimes you're going to hear a hard word, like I did, when he says, all right, just let it go. Enough is enough. This is not that big of a deal. We move on. We see another aspect of his ministry style there in verse 18, is that he liberates the captives. And this is the kind of language that would be drawn of like the deliverance that happened um, when they were in bondage to the Babylonians. It's the kind of deliverance that they were hoping for that, would, uh, that the Messiah would bring um, when the Romans were occupying their land. It's the kind of deliverance of sin that we have from sin, the kind of deliverance from death. And Jesus' coming was so that we might be set free from the power of sin and death that holds people. Now they were fully looking and expecting for the Messiah, for good reasons, biblically good reasons, to come in and boot these guys. Those that were living in the first century... They knew that if the Messiah would come in their day, that surely he's going to destroy the Romans. Because when you read the Old Testament prophecies, you don't find things to say, and in my first coming, I'm going to, and in my second coming, I'm going to. All you read is that he's going to heal the brokenhearted. He's going to liberate the captives. And then you read about how he's going to you know, crush those that are uh, bringing oppression upon the land. And he'll drive out the enemies. And you will never, ever have this kind of thing happen again. And you don't see this line in Scripture. We see it clearly now, if you will. We are the line. We are The church is that line. We can see that division, that there's more to do in his second coming that he did in his... First, then the fourth thing on the list is that he is going to bring a recovery of health. He's the blind are going to see, people are going to be healed, and Jesus did that. He healed the blind, he healed the lame, he healed the sick, he healed and raised people even from the dead. Um, still in verse eighteen, and he's going to liberate the oppressed again. Kind of a another echo of liberating the captives it's an example of synonymous parallelism where you say the same thing again Um, it's a type of uh, Hebrew poetry and then in verse 19 he says this is the acceptable year of the Lord to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord what's that he announced that this is the season of salvation now is the time to get right Now is a time to come to me and find forgiveness and find that healing and find the deliverance. The idea of the acceptable year of the Lord is that the guilty may come to God. That there's a, it's the idea of the year of Jubilee. Remember when all the debts were were, um, liberated, whatever you owed was gone, and everybody was debt free in the year of Jubilee. And so this is the idea that is there. But here's something that you need to know. He stops reading from Isaiah right there. But if you keep on reading in Isaiah 61, the next line says to declare the day of the vengeance of our God. And, and so you can see this, to proclaim the, uh, you know, the acceptable year of the Lord, first coming, and now second coming. you know And To bring judgment, to declare the day of the vengeance of our God. That's the second coming, isn't it? And so, again, when you're reading and if you're a first century believer, I mean, you have no reason to put a break between those two lines. But Jesus did that for us so we can understand these things. So what Jesus is doing today is he's healing, he's liberating, he's mending He's opening the eyes of the blind. This is the ministry style of Jesus. This is what he was doing then, and this is what he's doing today. In the book of Acts, when the lame man at the gate, beautiful, is given strength to his legs and he's able to stand up and walk, what do they say? Don't look at us as though we've done something. Jesus has done this. Oh, you killed him, but he rose from the dead, and you thought you could stop him. Guess what, Caiaphas? You can't stop him. You put him to death, but he rose from the dead. You know that he did. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he's still doing ministry. We didn't do this. Jesus did it. I wonder how that must have felt to Caiaphas, to Annas, the high priest. How did that resonate in them To hear those words, because you know that it must have just cut them. It would have gone right into them. It's like, what? He's alive. He really is alive. When they were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and they spoke with other tongues, he says, this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus has baptized us with the Holy Spirit. The power that's upon our life, you want to know what it's all about? Okay, I'll tell you what it's all about. This Jesus, whom you've killed, He's at the right hand of the Father and He's pouring out His Spirit upon all of us now. He's still working and He's still moving. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the continued miracles through the book of Acts was evidence of the fact that Jesus was alive, doing what He said He would do. And Jesus is still at work and doing those things that He did in His first coming. Well, As he was there in verse 20 um, and 21, we see that Jesus announces that this prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled. He says, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Can't you just feel the tension of the moment? Just like, okay, what are you going to say? I mean, you stopped. Abruptly, you stopped. You you forgot the best part. He's going to bring the day of vengeance. Jesus left that part out. And just sat down. I so said, everybody's looking at him. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm going to do it. I am the guy. I am this servant of the Lord that's coming to do these works. All of these gracious works that you just heard me talk about, I'm going to do them. That's what my life and my ministry is going to be about. In verses 22 through 30, Jesus then goes on to give a, well, we get a, Luke gives us a, uh, a description of how they responded, but then Jesus goes on to tell them, but you guys are going to reject me. And so verse 22, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. I'm like, where, where, where are you going with this? What are you, why are you talking about this Gentile woman right now? Why are you talking about what didn't, God didn't do among Israel, but he did to our enemies, among our enemies? And then he goes on. He said, many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed. Except Naaman, the Syrian, again, an enemy, actually one that was in power and authority, too. And this began to irritate them. They understood, oh, you're you're saying that we're going to reject you and that God could only do good and gracious things. What are you saying? And so he's announcing their rejection. But verse 28, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff then passing through the midst of them he went his way so listen the things that Jesus had to say here is that Israel's going to reject me and I'm going to go and do the ministry among the Gentiles. Now, he certainly does many miracles there, but proportionately down through the years for the last 1900 plus years, the majority of ministry has happened to a Gentile woman or a leprous Naaman. It's happened among the Gentiles. They got what he was driving at, and this made them so mad. They could not handle this, and they're like, we're just going to kill him right now. They, they, this was a, an attempt to murder him, and yet it was not his hour. This was not the time that the Lord had appointed for him to, to die, nor was it the way that he was going to die. And so he simply walked through the midst. Something happened. There was a restraint that came upon all of them. There was a fear. There was a a numbness, and the, the great hostility and plan just dissolved. I don't know what happened after he walked through their midst if it was kind of like, what just happened here, you know? We were going to do this, and then we, all, all of us stopped. What was going on? And the Spirit of God was protecting his son. So the, the people of Nazareth didn't take long to fulfill what Jesus had to say, did it? There were minutes But at the three years from this point, the nation, not just his hometown uh, friends and family, the nation is going to cry out for his destruction through the mouths of the leaders of Israel and those that gathered to cry out, crucify him. And they reject him as Messiah, again, in fulfillment. But this time, it is the hour of the Lord, and he is crucified. Paul makes reference to this rejection that Jesus is talking about in Romans. In Romans chapter 11, and I would encourage you to read the entire chapter. But in Romans chapter 11, and I think the verses are there for you, verses 25 through 27. He's talking about Israel. And he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Anytime you find in Scripture it says, I don't want you to be ignorant, you can be guaranteed there's a great deal of ignorance around whatever that issue is he's supposed to talk about. A few weeks ago I talked about whenever the Lord says do not be deceived, there's always a ton of great deception around that truth. Whenever the Lord says don't be ignorant, there's always a lot of ignorance, a lot of a lack of knowledge around this issue. So here's something he says, don't, don't mess up this one. Don't be wise in your own opinion. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until God has finished doing the miracle for the widow and to that Gentile Naaman among the Gentiles of the world today. It's happening, but when that fullness has come in, that blindness that has happened in part to Israel it's going to go away. Verse 26, so all Israel will be saved, as is, is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's the new covenant. That is the new covenant that he's talking about. Jeremiah chapter 31, writing about the new covenant, which Jesus instituted, right, um, The memory of it and the celebration of it in the communion service, this is the cup of what? The what? The cup of the new covenant given for your remission of sins. Well, this is the new covenant. And talking about that new covenant in Jeremiah 31, we come to this point in the the passage. Verse 35, it says, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and stars for a light by night who disturbs the seas and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Verse 36. If those ordinances depart from me, from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord. If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. But guess what? The sun was out today. The stars will be out tonight. We're not near an ocean, but I think we all know what's happening. It's roaring. All of these things are going on, which is to say, if they're going on, what? God is not finished with Israel who Jesus said, I know you're going to reject me. I know this is going to happen. But many have come to the theological position that says, well, God is through with Israel. You, gotta, you have to wrestle with, with Romans chapter 11. That says, don't be wise in your own opinion. This has not happened. This, is, there, this blindness is going to be a part until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And once that happens, then all Israel is going to be saved. When is that going to happen? Jesus said to Israel, on the moment they were rejecting him, he said, you will not see me anymore until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's what they were saying you know, on Palm Sunday. The disciples were saying this. He said, until you as a nation recognize who I am, you're not going to see me anymore. That is going to happen at the end of the great tribulation. At the end of the great tribulation, a spirit of supplication is going to be poured out on the nation of Israel. Their eyes are going to be opened and say, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom we've rejected and and set aside. He's the Messiah and they will say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Jesus. I mean, at that instant, the Lord's going to come to him. And I actually believe it's going to be instantaneous. How long did it take for Jesus to come to you when you called upon him? It was, I mean, while well, the word was still what? In your mouth. He saved you. And I believe that's what's going to happen with last day's of Israel. They will, while it's still in their mouth, they're going to be delivered. And then all those that remain, which are not going to be very many all of them are nationally, individually confessing Jesus, and that's why they'll all be saved, because they're confessing with their mouth. So Jesus' prophecy, yes, it's fulfilled like right in that moment, but it also looks out to three years from that point. Well, as you move through the rest of the chapter, um, you get examples of how Jesus fulfills what he said in Nazareth, he was going to do. So verses 31 through, 30, uh, through 44 are examples of ministry. The first example of ministry is in 31 through 37, where a demon-possessed man is liberated. Then he went down to Capernaum, headquarters for Jesus, while well, doing ministry, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And the demon had had thrown him in their midst. It came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. So there, uh, Jesus performs this miracle. Uh, Demon-possessed man is set free. We see people being liberated, right? The captives that are held have come to set the captive free. Now, he's not going to set... the the captives that are held by Rome, but he's going to set the captives free that are held by the power of Satan. And he liberates this one man. What an amazing story, and everybody was in amazement. The demons, though, surprisingly, um, they have pretty good theology here, don't they? You're the Holy One of God. That's right. He is the Holy One of God. James 2.19 says, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Demons know who Jesus is. They understand that he is the second person of the Godhead. And so, listen, there's no reason for us to be afraid of the demonic realm. Because greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. The Spirit of the Lord dwells in you. Where is the room Where's room for Satan to come? What fellowship has light and darkness together? I do not believe that a Christian can be demon-possessed or demonized. Uh, Can can there be uh, spiritual battle? Can there be warfare? we're, We're told that we have that. Can there be harassment? Can there be temptation? Yes, but a demon cannot take over a Christian and control them. There's not not a shred of evidence for this, except for modern-day evidence of, well, this happened. But give me a scripture. Give me one place where you see a follower of Jesus Christ that is demon-possessed, controlled by the power of Satan, being liberated. You can't find one. The only thing you can appeal to is like, well, we believe that this still happens but you have no no biblical evidence for this and this is what i would say if christians can be demon possessed then why don't we have any instruction about what to do with it because that seems to me like a pretty big deal if christians can be demon possessed i want to know about what to do about that but we don't have any evidence we know what to do for the person that is um, demon possessed and unbelieving when that demon goes out, they need to receive Jesus Christ as a savior and be filled with the Spirit, lest more come back and inhabit them. But the point is, if you're filled with the Spirit, when the demon comes back, guess what? There's no, you know, sold out. It's filled up. No occupancy. You're gonna have to go find another motel to inhabit. So I I, I know there are so many teachers out there that say this um, that Christians can be demon possessed. No, you can't. Most of what people say and give as evidence of demon possession is just works of the flesh. It's the works of the flesh. Read through Galatians chapter 5 and look at the works of the flesh. A Christian can walk in those things, unfortunately. We've all proven that to be true. And there's an answer for it, and it's to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, um, yeah, I, I'm just really narrow I want to see what the Word of God has to say. So if any of you think that you're demon-possessed and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not. You might be harassed. You might be tempted. You might be chased down. But greater is he that is within you than he that is in the world. You are full of the the Spirit of God. There is no room for him. Just don't give him a, a foothold in your life that he can attack you from. This is what we read in Ephesians. Mark 16, 17 says, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons and they will speak with new tongues. So if we do find somebody that is demon-possessed, the way to deal with it is to cast them out in the name of Jesus. Um, in verses 38 through 39, another example of the ministry that Jesus is going to bring. He said he would heal the blind. And so here in verse 38, 39, he brings a healing to Peter's mother-in-law. Now he arose from the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made a request of him concerning her. So he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served him. So I'm going to heal the blind. In other words, I'm going to bring healing to people. In verses 40 through 41, we see that there's more examples of liberation and healing for when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, re- and he rebuking them did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. So we just see that Jesus is doing exactly what he said. In verses 42. The preaching continues, and this is something that he said that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him to do. Now, verse 42, when it was day, he departed and went to a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So he was just doing a circuit and going around to all the synagogues, and he was preaching. So his fame is spreading, and it's making it difficult for him to move. And he decides when he's alone with the Father in a deserted place that he's got to move on. Now, the disciples in, Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, um, they come to say, hey, what are you doing? I mean, we, things are rolling, man. It's time to, you know, day two, let's get on with it. He's like, no, we got to go somewhere else. got to go somewhere What are you talking about? Things are happening right here. And he's like, no, we're moving on. Why? Because I want to go to preach to those who haven't heard. They've now heard. They have seen and they have heard. Let's go to the next group of people. There was no sitting still for the Lord. He wanted to go. And he went to all of these little villages. We read cities, but I mean, they're just, they're tiny I know many of you have been to Israel but you can go up on top of a place called Mount Arbel that looks down on the Sea of Galilee and while you're up there you can look at the entire place where Jesus ministered around Galilee. It's it's just small. I mean it's you know it's just this tiny little area. He's not going from, you know, Rome to Jerusalem to Athens. He's going to these little fishing villages. And Jesus wanted to bring the message there. And it's from this little tiny place. And it's still barely populated. The gospel's gone out throughout the world. But how did Jesus know it was time to move on? He's saying it's time to move on. Again, Mark chapter 1. Disciples are saying, what are you talking about? People are looking for you. Well, we'll close with this verse. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. And this is from the New Living Translation. It says the Sovereign Lord has given me his words of wisdom so that I know I may know what to say to all the weary, these weary ones. Morning by morning he awakens me and opens my understanding to his will. Jesus had quiet times. Jesus went away and he prayed in a deserted place. And this prophecy is a messianic prophecy. It's what The Lord said, um, there in the Old Testament, he did. So if you have the pre-incarnate Christ speaking, if you will, in Isaiah 50 verse 4, I've got wisdom from God. Because morning by morning, I'm getting up, I'm meeting with him, and he's opening my understanding to know what he wants to do. And if you read in Mark chapter 1, you'll see that he had risen a long while before daylight. Daylight. So, again, if that's good for the Lord, if, if the second person of the Godhead fills the need to be in fellowship with the Father and gleaning and gaining wisdom for the day, I mean, how much more Uh we to seek this time? And the reality is we never know what the day holds, do we? You, you don't know what you're waking up to tomorrow. You don't know what questions are going to be presented to you. You don't know what kind of hurt's going to be around your life. You don't know what kind of opportunities you're going to have to share the gospel. You don't know the kind of temptation that's going to be coming your way. We never know what the day holds. But I believe we can get alone with the Lord and just sit and wait. And that He will open your understanding to His will. Have you ever had the Spirit of God just whisper into your ear, What's about to happen? It's a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, it's it's a very natural thing. It's not it's supernatural, but it happens in a natural way, is what I'm trying to say. It comes in as a thought through your mind of like, you know, I really ought to, or what would happen if this, and these different scenarios begin to play out in your mind. You have a you have a series of thoughts you you begin to walk through because The Lord is opening up your mind to know what His will is. God is speaking. Are we listening for our instruction for the day? Lord, what do you have for me? All right, Lord, I don't hear anything specific, but I'm going to be listening all day long. And if something comes up, give me the tongue of the learned for that hour. Give me the wisdom of what to say and what not to say. If it's time for me to move on and go to another village, then, Lord, I want to know that and I want to do that. The Lord is so good. The ministry that Jesus began to do is still happening today. Jesus is still wanting to work in people's lives. Do we expect it? Do we have an anticipation that the Spirit of God wants to work in our lives, in somebody else's lives? You know, are we the friends that are grabbing people and saying, Come to the Messiah, come to Jesus? If need be, we'll rip the roof off to get you to him. Because you just so fully expect that this Jesus, you know his ministry style, you fully expect that he wants to work in your family and your friend's life. But he still wants to work in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for who you are and the ministry that you bring. Lord, we have experienced this. We have been set free from the captive from from our captivity we've been set free from the one that would seek to hold us in sin and death we've been liberated we know what it's like to be comforted by you and lord i pray that we would open our hearts wide open to the things that you want to do that we would never be found pushing you off and 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 just finding another reason to to go another day with a wound or a broken heart when you're ready to heal and make whole. So, Lord, would you move in our midst? We began our evening, Lord, just praying and calling upon you in song in this fashion. And, Lord, we just believe that you're still doing these things. Our eyes are on you.